It's Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries. On 95.5 WSB. All right, back on Green and Growing. Thanks for listening to 95.5 WSB. I have him back with us, folks. Uh, I had Norm Mitleider on the show back in February, and we talked about doing some corrective pruning on Japanese maples, and I just had a whole host of questions about pruning. Uh, Well, welcome back to the show, Norm. Thank you, Ashley, for having me back. So I wanted to, because back in February, you did mention, hey, wait, there's pruning to be done in April, too. Why? Why is now a good time? April, the tree is already leafed out, and when you start thinning the tree, which it will need, and you'll be able to see a little bit better the results in as far as the leaf canopy, uh, whereas when you're just trimming off the stems without leaves, you kind of know potentially what the canopy is going to be, but it's a lot easier to visualize when you actually have leaves on the tree and you can see, oh, by taking this out, I've created this thinness that I really am looking to achieve with the tree and the trimming. Yeah, and it is all about keeping it balanced, right? I mean, there's something to be said for for feng shui and, and making sure the tree aesthetically looks the way it should, right? That's absolutely correct. You want to be able to enjoy the tree for its essence, which means, you know, the, the growth habit, the leaves, the structure of the tree, and also be able to see into the tree. You definitely don't want doors and big windows, but you definitely want little windows. Right, right. So let's talk about um, something that a lot of folks have trouble with, identifying what Japanese maple they see or which kind they've bought or what they you know, have in an already established landscape. Now, I know there are hundreds of varieties, Norm. I'm not asking you to, to rattle off all of those, but let's just talk about the form. Let's make folks aware of at least being able to identify what form of maple they have. So where do you want to start with their growth habits? Let's start with the one that most people buy, and that is an upright tree. Okay. Um, the upright tree usually is a blood good, which is a burgundy leaf tree. has wonderful fall color, a nice red. But that one is a tree that grows upright, meaning that it grows up to the sun, and it can max out anywhere between 20 and 40 feet tall. Wow. I have seen some up in the northeast that are up in that zone. So they are a magnificent tree if they have the space to do that. And there are other varieties that do not grow that tall, like a fire glow is one that probably gets 12 to 15 feet tall, which would be a good tree for a normal landscape garden. And it does also have nice fall red color. Then there are others that are more dwarfish uh, that only get six to eight feet tall. They're still an upright habit. How is that indicated? I mean, when you when you purchase it from the nursery, when it indicates that it's dwarf, is it safe for you to make a bet that it is only going to get six to eight feet tall? That's where what's on the tag sometimes is a little misleading. They might say it's only going to get this tall, but you know, after 10 years, it's already met and exceeded that. That's when you really need to do a little research. 
go to the different uh, nursery websites and see what the average height is for the tree. You know, base your decision on that. But typically, you know, upright trees, all the branching goes vertical. It really doesn't weep over or mound. In that respect, you can definitely see what the tree can be and go from there. Okay. So we've got upright, we've got dwarf. You mentioned uh, weeping. That's a variety a lot of folks can easily identify. The weeping one would be like the Ryusin. It definitely has a strong downward growing habit, and some people use it as a ground cover. Oh, cool. uh, Because it will just creep along the surface of the ground if you let it. But typically those are staked up so that they can be up eight or 10 feet tall, but then cascade down. Wow. Um, so they are a great tree for that look, but they are not what would be considered the mounding, which is your typical lace leaf maple. Those are what are known as mounding habits, and those just kind of grow up, out, and down. And those are also one of the, the major trees that I see a lot of in the Atlanta landscape. And the typical one there is either the Veritas, which is the green lace leaf variety, or the Crimson Queen, which is uh, a red leaf variety. So are the limbs thin enough or kind of a little more willowy, like a weeping willow, or are they still pretty sturdy limbs? They just happen to grow downward. The weeping varieties over time, the the main branch is definitely a, a large branch, but the finer stems at the end are kind of like weeping willows and that they do have long stems that produce a lot of leaves on it. And the Ryusin being the weeper definitely is like a weeping willow. Okay. All right. And you mentioned when we were talking about uh, weeping forms, lace leaf, Let's talk about uh, leaf structure, because that could even help folks identify what they have by the way the leaf looks. So what are maybe three or four of the different shaped leaves we want to be aware of? The lace leaf form, which is also the dissectum, is very, as the name implies, lacy, uh, thin. It's attractive leaf. And then, like the blood good, has a palmatum leaf, which is the reason it's in the Acer palmatum family. And then there's a Matsumura type leaf, which is similar to the palmatum, but it's a little bit coarser. And uh, the margins, the leaf margins, are not as deep. And then there's the linear lobin, which is what they also call the strap leaf, and it's just these thin leaf margins. So it's a a very attractive tree and thin, typically a thin tree. It's not as dense as the palmatum and the the matsumura. And how many points generally does does a common Japanese maple leaf have on it? Do they all have the same number of points or is it different? No, they vary, but it's typically anywhere from five to seven. And there is, um, you know, in in Japanese maple identification, one that you can certainly identify aside from the rest when it has no leaves on it. And it is known for its bark color and the color of its trunk. Which one's that one? The sangukaku, which is known as 
the coral bark Japanese maple, so very different. red. Um, and that is very popular uh, because of that red trunk. Uh, but there is a sibling from that one called Bihu, and that one has a very beautiful yellow bark, but it has the same leaf. But it, I don't believe, gets as tall as a sangokaku as coral bark can get up 30 feet tall. So it's a big tree. There are other cultivars that do not get up that tall, one of them being winter flame. That one is one that probably tops out around 10 or 12 feet. Goodness. Well, Norm, this conversation really at least helps folks you know, be able to begin to identify what they've got or at least understand the growth habits. And thank you very much for the reminder this month to the month of April, guys. You heard Norm say it, a good time to maybe do a little more pruning on the tree and never want to do more than what, a fourth or a third at a time? That is correct. Norm Mitleider, great to have you back on the show, certified aesthetic pruner. Thank you for all of your help. Always a pleasure, Ashley. Appreciate Norm's time and knowledge there. Back to the phones we go. Up next is Randy calling from Lawrenceville. Hey there, Randy. Welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Ashley. I hope you're doing okay today. You as well. You've got a very thoughtful question. I love this. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I'm almost ashamed to ask this question. I'm 65 years old, and I should know the answer, I guess. But um, I have a fairly small garden uh and should i um how how critical is it to rotate where you plant the uh, location where you plant should i uh how critical is it to rotate the tomatoes the peppers the okra and all that stuff um and how often should you if you do how often should you rotate that is really, really a good question. And don't be ashamed at all that you don't know the answer because people can go years and plant their tomatoes in the same spot and go, what are y'all talking about crop rotation? My tomatoes always go in this bed. This is the spot in my yard that gets the right amount of sunlight. And other people don't have as much luck. And they think, oh, I just don't have a green thumb. I, I have failed at vegetables. But what has to happen is three things have to be present for something to get diseased. And we know we don't want that family of plant in that spot anymore. So you have to have the host plant. You have to have the pathogen, whatever disease is introduced into the area and the environment. You know, year to year changes. Of course, that's sun and rainfall and all of those kinds of things in the environment that, that produce, you know, maybe the onset for disease or maybe one wetter year is going to produce more bacteria in soil. But crop rotation is important. What they say, Randy, is about every two years. So when you're good with your tomatoes in one spot, like this will be year two for me, I'm going to keep them there. And you know what? I may even be risky and I may even try to plant them there next year for year three and see how they do. But what folks notice is just a diminished yield, right? The plant's not going to look as healthy. Um, so that's caused by pathogens in the soil and also low soil fertility. You know, you got to think if you're just putting tomatoes in the same spot every year, but not really adding any amendments, those plants year after year are just leaching nu nutrients out of the soil. So crop rotation is a good idea for folks who are planting on a larger scale. That's why they do cover crops 
like clovers and things like that just to add nitrogen and all of that back to the soil. So, yeah, the the short answer of it, Randy, is try your hand at it. Don't be too concerned with it. But once you start getting a lot of diseased tomato plants, that's when you want to make a note to yourself next year. Plant something different from a whole different family, like peppers are a different family than cucumbers and zucchini. So that way you you may want to think about rotating the type of vegetable. Yeah, well, uh, the main uh, the main reason uh, it would be kind of inconvenient is because I already have posts in the ground uh, that support my tomato cages, and uh, so um, you know I, I would have to uh, change a lot of things to rotate those. Yeah. But well, uh, I mean, and just do your best too to control the environment, control what you can. You know, stay on top of them, get out there and visit the tomato plants every day remove yellowed leaves, anything that looks diseased, have your insecticides on hand, you know, to combat the worms, have fungicides if necessary, just keep a good eye. Any tomatoes that fall onto the ground that just don't survive on the vine, remove those. Do your best to manage, you know, good practices there, keep the plants mulched and things like that. And also try to think outside the box. If you've got those posts in place, maybe start thinking, well, maybe beans next year or something that grows upright that may benefit from from that and put the tomatoes in another spot. Randy, I got to go to break. Great question. Thank you so much for calling 404-872-0750. Moths and an apple tree. When we come back, you're listening to WSB. It's Scott Slade, host of Atlanta's Morning News on 95.5 WSB. The news, weather, and traffic team will be here first thing Monday morning to help you get back to work on time and informed. Now back to Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca on 95.5 WSB, Atlanta's News and Talk. The update on your weekend weather brought to you by Finley Roofing. Today, scattered morning showers, but drying out in the afternoon. That's good news if you have Easter plans. A high in the mid-70s, lows around 54 degrees. And then tomorrow morning, clouds, scattered rain showers and storms in the afternoon. So sunrise Easter service may be dry, but no guarantees later in the day. And then showers linger on into Monday to start the work week. 404-872-0750. He's been holding patiently in Alpharetta. It's John. Hey, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure chatting with you. Long, long, long time listener. Thank you. I have these Boston ferns and I uh, hang them on my front porch. And for the past 20 years or so, later in the summer, um, generally when there's been some southern breezes, um, I have an infestation of moths and um, they ravage the plants. They look terrible. I've tried pyrethrins, um, you know, to spray on them. I've also used the Bacillus thuringiensis, mm-hmm. and um, it, it doesn't do a good job. And I spoke to your call screener, and I said what I'd really like is to, you know, not try to treat the problem, but to treat it before the problem exists. <laughs> Prevention, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. what you've got is the caterpillars are actually what eat the leaves. Once it matures yes. into mm-hmm. a moth, they're not so interested in the leaves. So when you see that damage, it's caterpillars. And like what you're saying, maybe mid-June is when you see a problem, like early summer? Once it starts to warm up, and mm-hmm. it seems like it does require, um, I don't see that there is any infestation when I collect my plants, you know, purchase my plants. Yeah. Plants look healthy. They seem to do well. Um, but then once it starts to warm up, and I, I really believe the, the malls kind of float in from the south, 
Yeah, um, that's, I'm that's, going to blame Florida. And I think you're absolutely spot on with that, John, because the eggs are laid and then the ferns are transported up here, and that's all kind of the cycle. So that BT, the Bacillus thuringiensis, is going to be beneficial when you see the caterpillars. That specifically targets caterpillars. Once they're moths, it's a no-go. So once they're mature as moths, what you'll have to just use is any garden insecticide. That will control the moths. I know we probably want to avoid spraying too much insecticide on it, but that's going to be beneficial. Timing is everything. Keep that BT on hand, but use it when you start to see the caterpillars Then you're going to ward off and just stop that life cycle, interrupt that life cycle. Thank you so much for the call. Time to take a break. We'll be back with more on Green and Growing at WSB. Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries on 95.5 WSB. Halfway through the show on a Saturday morning, April 16th, the day before Easter. Happy Easter weekend. Hope you had a very nice Good Friday yesterday and a happy Passover as well for those who celebrate. 404 750 I would love to know what's on your Easter menu. Some kind of yummy beef or maybe ham and deviled eggs, which is uh, what we do, a little more traditional. Or, uh, I don't know, do you do turkey? Do you do pork tenderloin? It all just depends. 404-872-0750. Some really good questions coming in on the phone and also on the Facebook page. Search Green and Growing WSB, and that's how you can find my Facebook page and keep up there. This morning, I just posted pictures of three little things that I found uh, in people's yards while I was taking the dog for a walk yesterday. All are falling from the trees. All are culprits of carrying pollen. And it was just interesting to see these little things laying in the grass. So I picked them up, photographed all three, and I put them on the Facebook page and watched you to identify what tree did they drop from, from? What tree did they come out of, you know, you you know how to identify sweet gum balls and pine cones and things like that. Acorns, you know, come from oak trees. But this is kind of that reproductive part of the tree before you see those things. And so it's kind of interesting to learn a little something. I loved hearing from Amy on Facebook back in December, sending me pictures of her azalea and everything was turning yellow. Uh, the leaves were yellowed. She was real concerned. The whole bush was pretty much a golden yellow with the leaves on it. And I said, you know what? Wait and see. I know gardeners, we want to do the best by our plants. So I said, you got to wait and see because yellowing leaves in the winter is really common for azaleas, the ones that keep their leaves, the evergreen ones. Um, so wanted her to step back, not panic. And I loved the follow-up from Amy just uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact. So four months later, a picture of her beautiful white azaleas saying, I just wanted to share an updated picture of my azaleas that were yellowing. They actually bloomed and they look gorgeous, green, healthy leaves. So that is perfect. All of the healthy leaves grew and pushed out and pushed out all the gold and the yellowing one. I've got John who sent a picture uh, asking me to identify a creeping weed that's taken over the flower beds, kind of vining, has a little purple flower on it, and I identified it for him, and I'm going to share that with you on the Facebook page as well. Uh, One of the resourceful things that you can find there, when you go to photos, 
look at the albums. I have two albums in particular that I'm very proud of. Walter and I started them together. Highway Horticulture and Weed of the Week. So Weed of the Week, I literally have not done every week, but certain times of year I kick into gear and I try to post a new weed on a Monday. Uh, so identifying a weed that is very common that you will more than likely see in your landscape and then how to treat it. So that I'm going to use John's photo for that Weed of the Week. And Highway Horticulture is really prime this time of year when everything's starting to leaf out and flower and you're wondering what are some of these trees that have these beautiful colorful flowers on them in that photo album highway horticulture i've identified them for you the different types of cherry trees that look so pretty now when crepe myrtles start to come into bloom you'll know what that is a smoke tree vitex all kinds of things maybe you've heard the names but didn't quite know how to identify them 404 Up next, we go over to the Northeast, Athens, Clark County, and talk to Josh. Hey, good morning, Josh. How you doing? Very good. What's your question? Well, uh, you asked about what we're going to have for Easter dinner as well, and we're going to have a low country bowl this year. Oh, my gosh. That sounds fantastic. And when do you start prepping for that? Uh, probably tomorrow morning okay. after church. So. Okay. Yes, ma'am. All right, I'll be uh, over. I'll be over about 2 o'clock. <laughs> come on, come on. All right. Uh, so I planted a apple tree about five years ago with my daughter for a tree for her. And I put it in an area where it should have got plenty of sun. And it's getting about six to eight hours of sun a day. And the trunk, when I bought it, I bought it from a large home goods store. And the tree itself was about eight, ten foot tall when I bought it. But the trunk hadn't gotten any bigger than about three inches in diameter and some over the years it's either had four or five leaves this year it's got maybe 12 leaves and a couple flowers but it isn't doing anything what i thought it was a self-pollinating tree and my neighbor has bees but i don't know um, do i hit it with some fertilizer or what should i do should i dig it up and move it again or do you literally just have the one Yes, ma'am. That's the problem. Yeah, it's really tricky to know that when you buy them. And the tag should say, but depending on the nursery that you get them from, the tag may not have all of the information on it that you want. Um, I would definitely always plant an odd number, so more than one, starting with three, five, and so on. Um, there's great charts online when you just Google like apple tree cross-pollination or whatever to kind of see which varieties can go with one another. I think even crab apple trees, you know, which we don't really eat crab apples that come off of those trees, those are good pollinators as well. They provide good cross-pollination for apple trees. Um, and making sure, too, like you said, the neighbor has bees, and that's so important. I think that's a step a lot of people forget, that we really need those beneficial insects to transfer and carry pollen. So here you are, you know, you got the neighbor down the street misting for mosquitoes and using all kinds of crazy treatments, which may impact houses down the street, too. And I, I, I don't want to say that the mosquito treatment is going to kill everything, but things like that where we're treating for all kinds of bugs and don't really realize as we kind of narrow it down the bugs we do want to keep, the ones we need. Like we had the call about the Boston fern from John. You know, I mean, caterpillars are beneficial in some regards. You don't want to kill everyone you see. So bees are important. I'm glad you were aware of that. But um, it, could it be, you know, maybe that you've got some time in the fall to maybe throw two more in the in the yard and then start really seeing a change come spring? 
Oh, absolutely. Yes, ma'am. I could definitely do that. Yeah, I would just yeah, Google would that Google apple that tree cross-pollination chart and see maybe what other varieties you could do. And make sure the varieties that you like, you know, and you'd want to eat as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your help. You have a blessed day and a happy Easter. You too, Josh. And I'll even wish you a happy Easter in person when I show up for the Low Country Boil tomorrow. Man, that sounds good. We uh, We had brunch plans and then had to cancel them, so... Eh, so it goes, but we'll uh, we'll go to church, I'll play a little tennis, and eat some yummy food. We'll see. 404-872-0750. So again, some great questions from you, and I love getting updates from all of you, too, um, on the Facebook page when you reach out and just saying, you know, following up with me, and I ask a lot of callers to do the same thing. Hey, let me know how it goes. You know, call me back in four or five months, and I want to know the outcomes. Um, Lisa sent me a picture, super, super interesting, of the base of her daffodil plant, and I can see the leaves and all of that and the, and the mulch she's got around them. Some of the leaves on the daffodils look fine, you know, tall, light green, blady-looking leaves, and then some are curled like medusa like a green snake just curled at the bottom, wrapped around the base of the daffodil. And she's like, oh, my goodness, what's wrong with my daffodil leaves? And I don't know if any of you have ever seen that. And the leaves that are kind of curly and looking like snakes wrapped around the base of the plant, they're more of a lime green. They're not that pretty pale bluish green like the rest of the leaves. So you notice the texture obviously looks wrong. The color's a little off. So a couple of things that I found for Lisa could be herbicide damage. Um, people notice this on their tomato plants as well during the season when they have a funny leaf curl to them. That is one thing to consider, that it could be herbicide damage. And then you say, well, wait, I don't use chemicals in my lawn. I don't use herbicides. You know, drift happens. And so if your neighbors have people or themselves treating Roundup or anything like that, it can be carried through the air. I think I read as far as like a football field length. I mean, so what is that, 100 plus yards? Uh, it can be carried through the air on a windy day if you're not responsible and not careful using herbicides, and it can, you know, affect other plants in a neighboring yard. So that was one indication that I thought may be herbicide damage. The other, there are stem and bulb nematodes that can cause a darkened bulb scale, which you won't really notice because the bulbs are in the ground, but yellowish pockets in the bulb contain the nematodes where they kind of hang out. Infested bulbs either don't grow at all or they fail to flower, but once they're infected, the shoots are going to be abnormal and twisted. So that could be another sign um, or another maybe cause of the twisted leaves were stem and bulb nematodes. And all of this kind of thing, so handy, you can find out through the University of Georgia Extension Service. They provide such great publications on all kinds of things. And we had Randy call earlier about crop rotation, and there is literature and publications and to no end written about crop rotation and kind of the, you know, what I think is so interesting, the families of vegetables when you don't really think about or tomatoes and peppers in the same family or squash and pumpkins, of course. Um, so all those things you kind of have to think about. And the University of Georgia Extension Service has done all of that for you if you want to learn a little more or find more reliable resources other than just what you find on Google and what the top search is. Go to extension.uga.edu and go to publications. And like I said, the the world is yours. Just Google any or type in anything in the publication search and you'll come up with something. 404-872-0750. When we come back, we'll talk to Rick in Snellville. Has some ajuga in his centipede grass. I will tell you what both of those things are. Ajuga 
and what centipede grass is, if you're not familiar, uh, when we come back. And then at 8.30, Pike Nursery is coming up with solutions for shade. So if any of you have areas that you have just wasted years and time and money trying to grow grass in a spot that it's just not going to grow, they've got some plants and ground cover in stock that are going to be good for shade. A lot of them are perennial. Plant at one time and forget about it. Plus Easter plants, things you may want to pick up as great gifts for tomorrow. We'll be back. You're listening to 95.5 WSB. It's Scott Slate. Did you know you can listen to Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca on Saturday mornings on your smart speaker? And me too, weekday mornings. Just tell your smart speaker, play 95.5 WSB, and we're on. 95.5 WSB, Atlanta's news and talk. Here's Ashley. An update on your weather brought to you by Finley Roofing. Right now you're waking up to some rain. Things are a little soggy. It's about 59 degrees outside. It's going to warm up to the mid-70s. And most of the rain is going to die out throughout the afternoon. So uh, later on, it'll be dry and nice, I think, partly cloudy. And then tomorrow, uh, a.m. clouds, p.m. rain and storms, high of 73, low of 56, and rain to start the work week. But we'll be back to full sun by Tuesday. Green Green and growing. Ashley Frasca's top three things to do this weekend. Number one, keep those Easter lilies. Once they start to have faded flowers, cut those off, put them in the yard, and also plant amaryllis. You've still got the bulbs that have nice green leaves coming from them from Christmas. Hopefully, you didn't throw those out. You can put those in the yard, too. Leave the foliage on them, though, and stake them up if necessary, and then I'll tell you when to bring them in for the wintertime to where you have those nice, beautiful amaryllis flowers at Christmas. Number two, maybe safely out of the woods. I'm kind of thinking so from any more frosts. I would go ahead and plant dahlias, elephant ears, caladiums. You have until May, June to do all of that. Don't be in a rush. And go ahead and do that uh, that vegetable garden, too. And number three, it's a great time to mulch. Anytime is a great time to mulch. But spruce up the garden beds and to prevent weeds as well. 404-872-0750. Rick in Snellville. Hey, welcome to Green and Growing. Hi, Ashley. Thank you so much for taking my call today, Ashley. Yeah. I, I've been fighting... Um, the Spronza Juga. We got it as a small flowering plant for a flower bed, and it has literally gotten, in, gotten into our centipede grass, and it spreads. It has runners, just like the centipede, and I've tried to hand-pick this out of the centipede grass, but I, I'm not sure what to do to stop it. I would like to, you know, kill it, I guess, but I, I don't want to hurt my centipede grass as well. Yes, so ajuga, also bugleweed, is really beautiful as a ground cover if it stays where you want it because the leaves are like a deep purple green and then it'll have a spiky little purple flower on it. But it's really overpowering, Rick, as you have found out. It definitely could overtake centipede in a matter of of months. And it does spread by runners, so it's a little little hard to to control. Um, I would be selective with a herbicide to use that. Really, this is meticulous because I know you said you've even tried to remove it by hand and that's time consuming. This is probably just as much so, but it's going to be a little more effective. Hand painting something like Roundup on those ajuga leaves. And that's going to take some time, not spraying it or anything like that because that's going to get way too close to the centipede. But little by little trying to do that and that's going to kill it out down to the base. I would say if it's spread by seed, you know, oh, do your pre-emergence treatment. Pre-emergence herbicide granular usually gets to seed as they germinate and kills it. But yeah, this is a little bit different. So I would start with that and digging out, you know, big squares that you can dig out and then keeping that lawn care calendar handy of when you're going to be able to fill in the spots centipede. And also keeping in mind, too, 
yes, a juga's tough, but anytime you've got a weed or any ground cover that you don't want competing with the grass that you do want, the tougher and more strong you make that turf, it's going to be able to choke things out. Um, so once you get a, a handle on the ajuga, it may always kind of be there. It's always going to keep spreading, unfortunately, because that's just the nature of the ground cover that it is. But making sure, don't get distracted from keeping up with the good environmental practices, you know, making sure the centipede stays watered as it needs to, proper mowing height, uh, getting ahead of any diseases or anything like that, and just really keeping that tough, fertilizing it at the right time as well, which the first round of fertilizer for you for centipede rick is going to come up in probably the end of the month early may good cultural practices like that to where it's tough enough to choke out things but yeah unfortunately just spot treating the ajuga is probably the best thing you can do and if you like it as a ground cover i've dug it up square by square and moved it somewhere else and also think about a physical barrier you know once you've got everything kind of under control some kind of landscape uh, ties or some kind of little plastic fencing or something like that to really delineate that spot and be able to just go at it with a weed eater in the future right up against that divider however you choose to divide it um, and making sure that the runners don't go up over whatever you've got be it brick or plastic or anything like that so I hope that helps a little bit I like a juga but I really like your centipede too so it is going to take some work but you're on the right track manual removal a little bit of very specifically applied roundup will get you going all right coming up at eight o'clock we're going to talk to bob and alpharetta when is a good time to prune his azaleas i'm really glad he asked and jim and powder springs advice on digging up crowded plants and how to keep the good plants that he wants 404 you're listening to 95.5 wsb